Um, text this morning is from 1 John 3, 7 to 10, and there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you, um, and you'll find the text on page 1022. If you want to turn there with me now. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brandon. You may be seated now. Uh, my name is Ransom Kent. I'm the pastor here. I'm really thankful that you all have joined us this morning, whether here in person or online. Um, and I think it's actually a good thing that you're sitting down uh, right now because I'm going to start this sermon uh, with some terrible news. Um, uh, and this may come to quite a shock to some of you, but um, we sin. I know, I know. As this could be, some of you are falling over, wake them up, smelling salt, someone. Anyway, we, we sin, we all sin. I, I like messing with you guys, by the way. You always are expecting the worst. Um, listen, when we confess our sins, what are we saying? We sin in thought, word, and deed. That does not leave many parts of what we do out. In fact, every part of us is at least a little bit sinful. Every part of us is at least a little bit sinful. That's the idea behind total depravity. Every part of us, the things we think, the things we say, the things we do, even the good things we think, say, and do, is at least a little bit tainted by the corruption of our hearts. So as a side note, there's always something to repent from. <laughs> there's always something. In every scenario we find ourselves, there's always something that we have done that does not please God, that does not follow his commandments. And so this is a good reality check. This is a good reality check is that we will never stop dealing with our sin. We will never stop dealing with it. I was reading this week, um, some of you may be familiar, Brennan Manning, he wrote uh, Ragamuffin Gospel, and he says in that book, uh, God actually expects more failure from us than we expect from ourselves. God has a real full view of, of who we actually are and how much sin is actually in our hearts. And here's the good news. Because God expects sin, he's prepared for it. He's prepared for sin. And so this idea that we'll always be dealing with our sin is not an excuse to jump headfirst into it. Well, I guess we better just get on with it. Let's just go, go, go to town on sin. No, we're, to, we're called to fight against sin tooth and nail. And, and fighting against sin tooth and nail is not just saying no to sin. It's saying yes to God and his loving, kind patience with us. And so as we live the Christian life, as we follow Christ, and we're reminded constantly of our sin, this develops something it develops a desperate need 
for Jesus, a desperate need for Jesus. We need Jesus to assuage God's wrath so when we do wrong things, we deserve something from that. We need Jesus to cover those sins. We need his resurrection for victory over sin, death, and the devil. We need it. It's not just something nice he's done that we can give or take. We need it. We need his perfect life, his righteousness, to even be in the presence or in a relationship with God at all, to be called his children. And so here's what we have to understand. The Christian life, as it goes on, our need for Jesus doesn't dissipate. Our need for Jesus doesn't decrease. That's what, that's what a crutch does. You understand what a crutch does? It, it holds you up until you don't need it anymore. Jesus is not a crutch. It's actually much more serious for us than that. We're not injured in our hearts. We are sinful in our hearts. And so as we answer the call to fight sin, we'll see more and more and more our actual personal inability to overcome it. And as we see our inability to overcome it, we're going to develop this, this deeper and deeper and deeper craving for what Jesus offers us. That's how the Christian life goes. And so a passage like this from 1 John, when we're called to fight sin, we have to, we have to couch this reality that we're called to fight against sin in the gospel, in the gospel message. These kinds of passages are not about just being a better person. That's bootstrap living. That's, I can do this. We've got this. That's not what these passages teach us. The Bible never says just be better. It's not the point. First and foremost, these passages are a call to dive deep into who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he continues to do. That's the first thing. The second thing is in response to what he's done and who he is and what he continues to do, we're called to, to, to fight against our urge to, to reject him. And so as John deals with the idea, the concept of sin and obedience and rejecting sin and saying yes to God, here's what we can see from this passage. Here's how he paints this issue. He shows us who Jesus is, and from showing us who Jesus is, he defines who we ought to strive to be. From showing us, then he shows us what Jesus did, and from what Jesus did, he guides us towards what we must do, and then he tells us why Jesus did it. And by seeing why Jesus did these things, we can see why we ought to pursue this kind of of life. And so if you want to summarize it, it's the title of this sermon. What John is saying is we cannot have Christ and reject him too. We can't have both of those things. Let me pray for us and we'll jump into the text. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for balancing for us our desperate need for Jesus and giving us what we need to actually have access to that, and then also calling us to purity, calling us to holiness, calling us to obedience, calling us to righteousness. And so these topics can be so hard to, to conceptualize because we're broken. We're broken in thought, word, and deed. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that by the power of your Spirit, you would give us the truth in our hearts from your Scripture. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. So that's the, that is the loose outline that we're going to follow this morning. Who is Jesus and who should we be? What did Jesus do and what must we do and why did Jesus do it? And why should we also be doing what we're called to do? So in about 90 minutes, I should be complete. Um, so hopefully you brought lunch. That was in the announcements. Pack your lunch today. Uh, listen, who is Jesus? Look at verse 29. Verse 29 from 1 John 2. If you know that he is righteous, stop there. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is righteous. And so the beautiful, mysterious truth, Jesus in the flesh is 100% man. He's 100% God. That's not a mystery we're going to solve today. But in his humanity, he was sinless. He never did anything wrong, thought, word, or deed. So in that way, he is very much not like us. It says in 1 Peter, who, who lived life with Jesus, he says, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. And so as Jesus lived this human life, blood, sweat, tears, he remained sinless. And although that is different than we experience, he is not unrelatable. I, I read this this week. I was in the CBR, the Community Bible Reading Plan, and, and this was in Hebrews this week. Listen to this. Listen to how the, the author of Hebrews demonstrates Jesus as very relatable to us. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. That means to pay payment of sins, for sins, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you hear the good news of how much Jesus understands the way, the way our life goes? We need to get this straight. Jesus was tempted. He was tempted. And in fact, Jesus was tempted to a degree that we'll never understand. Why? Because we generally give in. <laughs> we give in to our temptation. Jesus carried resistance to temptation all the way to the end of it. And so he understands in our lives what it means to face sin and want to do it, but then to, to choose God instead. Jesus said no to his flesh. He said yes to his father. That's who Jesus is. He is righteous. And because of who he is, what kind of person ought we to strive to be? Look at the second part of verse 29. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Because Jesus is righteous, because of who he is, we are called to be people who do righteousness. To be righteous. This phrase, practicing righteousness, it's peppered throughout this whole passage. Really what it means is to take an action on purpose. To take an action on purpose. So when we are called to be righteous, it's not this natural function. It's not just continuing in how we have been. We'll talk about that a little bit later. No, it's the on-purpose decision to say no to sin and yes to God. That's what practicing righteousness is. Is. It's, a it's a striving to obey all the commands of God, not just the ones we like or the ones that seem sensible. No, we're, we're called to do what God has called us to do, to say no to the things he says are wrong and to say yes to who he is and what he calls us to do. And so because Jesus is righteous, we are called to do righteousness, to be righteous. Back to 1 Peter, it's actually the verses that surround that declaration that he committed no sin 
Peter gives us a great practical view of, of what, how we should look at Christ. So this is 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. For this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. This is one thing, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. And that's where he says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then Peter gives us some examples. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did Jesus do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here's the second thing. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, talking about the death of Christ on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Here in these short phrases, Peter encapsulates the one-two punch of the Christian life. The one-two punch. Yes, Jesus set an example. He said, watch how I live. I will live the way God has always called his people to live. I will do it perfectly. I will set an example. But that's not all. What did he do? He actually made it possible. He took our sin on himself so that what? We might die to sin and live to righteousness. Actual healing, actual change has taken place in what Jesus Christ has done for us. So in Christ, we are shown what obedience looks like. And also in Christ, praise the Lord, we are enabled to obey his commandments. We get to chapter 3 now, verses 1 through 3. And I love this because John cannot contain himself. He, as he's talking about obedience, he can't help but declare his excitement over salvation. Look at verses 1 and 2. He talks about what God has done for us. So we've seen now who Jesus is. Let's look at what God has done. Verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Now listen, these next four English words should be balm to your soul. And so we are. <laughs> he wants to make sure this is not something that you haven't attained. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What has God done? He's given us love. How has he given us love? He's adopted us as sons and daughters of the king. Not a mystery. He tells us about it right here. I have adopted you. So Jesus on the cross is not a sterile transaction of sin for no sin. No, it's a, it's a relational transaction. He cancels our sin and then makes us part of his family. Not only that, he's tied our fate to Christ's fate. In his death and resurrection, we have died to sin. We just read that in Peter. We've been risen to a new life of righteousness we are his children, we are his brothers, as it says in Hebrew. That's, we are tied to Christ's fate. The reason we are the children of God is because we are brothers with Christ. And we are tied to his fate in eternity. When he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. In all of his glory, in all of his perfection, God has said, guess what? I'm going to make you like that for eternity, and you'll be with me for eternity. John is busting at the seams with these truths. 
And I think sometimes we read a passage like this, we're asking the question, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And so we glaze over these moments where John is saying, God has given us love. He's made us children. We are his children. And there's this promise coming down the road to us from God, and it's sure. So we've been given by God all the rights of children. We've been made righteous as if we were actually righteous before God because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And so the question then comes, well, then what shall we do? What shall we do? Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Seeing the works of God, seeing what God has done, seeing how far God went to be in relationship with us, seeing what he does now, claiming us as his children, seeing what he will do later, living in this inextinguishable hope of what God will make us, these things should motivate us to purify ourselves. Remember, an encounter with God, what it happens when we encounter God, we are changed. We are changed. That's what we've been hearing from John from the very beginning of this epistle. And so seeing what Christ has done, all that he gave, what does it require of us? It requires us to give all in return, but that's not an empty sacrifice. That's not an empty sacrifice, because what do we get in return? Why do we purify ourselves? We purify ourselves in preparation for an eternity uh, with him who is pure. We're preparing for something that is better than we can imagine. One scholar this week said this, the hope of being like Christ in the future expresses itself in an effort to purify oneself to be like him in the present. So let's summarize these truths. We've seen who Jesus is. We see who he's calling us to be. We see what God has done, and now what are we supposed to do with that? Because God has adopted us as his sons and daughters, because he's promised us eternal life, we have to strive to become, this is a lovely truth, what we already are, the children of God, righteous in God's eyes. So John, as he's calling the church to obedience, he's wrapping it in the context of a good Savior. And then we get to the last portion here, verses 4 through 10, where we see why Jesus did this. Why did Jesus come and live and die when he did? Why did he come and submit himself to the flesh? He had everything in heaven you could imagine. He was one with the Trinity. They, they, were, they were complete. He didn't need anything else. Why did he come and submit himself to the death on a cross, the worst thing you can imagine? John makes it very clear in verses 5 and verse 8. So look at verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then the second part of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? to eliminate sin completely. That's the mission. That's the mission. Not, not to make life better, not, not to make life happier or easier, not to do anything other than destroy the works of the devil. Why did he do that? Why focus on that? Because sin is our worst enemy. God created, he invited us into relationship. What broke all that? Sin. Sin is the thing that causes all of our hurt, all of the problems we see. 
And Jesus Christ came with a singular mission, destroy sin. Praise his name for that. If he'd come for anything else, he would have missed the point. Jesus came to eliminate sin. And so why must we pursue righteousness? Now we're going to plug this truth that Jesus came to remove sin into the rest of these verses. So listen to this truth. John is making a point. Everyone, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. He attaches then this truth. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. See what he's saying? To, to, to pursue sin makes no sense if Jesus came to take it away. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And again, he says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So why must we pursue righteousness? The thing, the, the way of life that makes the absolute least amount of sense on this planet is to claim Christ and pursue sin. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. That's what John's saying. He's saying Jesus came to destroy sin. Jesus came to get rid of sin. So to claim you have Jesus and then pursue headfirst going into sin and keeping on sinning, it makes no sense. This is where he's getting at when, when we say we cannot have Christ and reject him too. We can't do both. We can't have Christ and reject him too. And so he uses these two phrases, keeping on sinning and making a practice of righteousness. Let's talk for a moment about each of those. Keeping on sinning. Remember, we started this sermon with that terrible news that we are sinners. We're born sinners. That's how we come out of the womb. We desire the things that, that we think will make us happy, but they're actually empty, false idols that will never satisfy. They're the created things. Keeping on sinning means we continue in that way of life. We never stop desiring. We never stop pushing away and saying no to the flesh. We just give and eat and eat and give, and we just feed our desire. And so keeping on sinning is allowing that to continue without obstacle, which makes making a practice of righteousness make all the more sense. It's an interruption of our sinful ways. It's working against our sin, following after God. It's a reliance on God's spirit to cease and desist in our sinful ways. And that's what John is calling us to do, to stop the keeping on of sinning and to make a practice of righteousness. And I think that's why we need to understand what is the right kind of righteousness in this moment. What do we mean by, what is the right kind of righteousness to plug into our minds and to pursue? This passage, rightfully understood, should not spur us on to self-righteousness. And what I mean by self-righteousness is this. You look at your life, you categorize all the things that, you, that, that, that are wrong, so you make a list of all your sins, and you think, all right, time to get to work. Time to get to work. These things are going down. That's not, that's, not, that's not what this is. 
grinding it out and, and, and uh, under your own willpower to tear asunder all the things that God hates so you can have an impressive resume. That is not what this passage is calling us to. John Owen, in his book, The Holy Spirit, says this, there is then a great difference between true holiness produced in us by the Holy Spirit and a morally decent life produced by self-effort. The life of holiness worked out in us by the Spirit needs to be kept pure and undefiled by the Spirit of God in the blood of Christ. Do you see? You see who leads us and guides us and purifies us? It's not our behavior. It's our dependence upon Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Spirit, God the Father, is who purifies us, who holds us in check. Whereas the morally decent life, he continues, produced by self-effort, endeavors to keep itself pure by strong determination. That's where verse 9 comes in. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because he has been born of God. God enables us to be obedient. One scholar who's French, and I don't want to try and pronounce his name, said this, Christian lives, the Christian lives under the influence of God living in him. Dane Ortland, we've been reading Gentle and Lowly, his follow-up book says this, it's not about doing more or doing better, it's about going deeper. It's about going deeper. So how, in God's name, can we stop our keeping on sinning? How can we stop it? How can we make a practice of righteousness in our life, live as a child of God? Live as a child of God, going deeper into that relationship, becoming who we are, living under the influence of our gracious Father. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so why would we do that? Why would we pursue God? Why would we go deeper with God, knowing his attributes? It was in the chapter this week that we learned about just in Sunday school that, that Dane Ortland said that uh, the Christian life is actually just a reprogramming, a decades-long reprogramming of our hearts. We have to take the things that we assume wrongly about God and replace them with the things that he says about himself. That's what going deeper looks like. We sit in his presence and learn and understand his promises, his love, his generosity, his judgment, and we let those things change us. That's why we would do that too, because God in love, what did he do? He created the world. He invited us in. And even though we, we shattered all of that, what happened? God had grace, and instead of snuffing us out, which he could have done, he had grace on us. And the greatest truth of all, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us first. He did it first. He approached us first. And not only that, when he has brought us to himself, he adopts us as sons and daughters. He's made an actual, real way for us to know him personally. And he's promised in Christ an eternity will be like him. So church, since we cannot have Christ and reject him too, what are we to do? We're to certainly see our sin for what it is. It's worthless. 
I'm, telling, I'm saying this to myself, it's worthless. We go back and back and back to it thinking, oh, maybe this time it'll satisfy. It's worthless. It's worthless. We need to label it as such. And then we must make a practice of being who we already are, the children of God. For the Lord's Supper, we're going back to where the sermon started with the terrible news that we all sin, that God knows that we sin. He expects our sin to come, and because he expects it, he's prepared things for us to continue in our righteousness with him. John says in the passage that we read today, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Confidence in our forgiveness. God has made a regular way for us to continue to tap into his grace. Certainly, it's reading the Bible. When we read the Bible, we, we are receiving God's grace. We pray, we're receiving God's grace. You can feel it when you're at church here, being together with your brothers and sisters, you receive God's grace. And here at the table, as you eat that little chunk of bread and you drink whatever's in the cup in front of you, juice or wine, you receive, you're reminded of, you're, 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 your mind is drawn to the fact that you are plunged in an ocean of God's grace. And so this morning, as we look at the broken bread and we think and, and see the, the, the color of the wine or the juice, we are reminded what our sin cost Jesus. He died a horrible death. He was separated from God because of Ransom Kent's sins, because of your sins. He paid as if he had done them. And so what is our part in all this? Our part is to fall flat on our faces before him and thank him and receive and I know that can be scary sometimes. Confessing that we are in desperate need of someone else's help and we cannot help ourselves, that's a scary notion. But here's the thing. Everyone that stands up here this morning and comes and eats a little piece of bread and drinks the cup, they are saying the same thing. I'm in desperate need. I am in desperate need. You cannot stand and come and eat if you're not a sinner and you don't need Jesus. So you're in good company this morning to fall flat on your face. Not literally. We don't want you to do that. Um, so this morning, as we talk about who should come, certainly those who can declare that they are a sinner, who believe that they are saved only by Jesus Christ and his work on their behalf. No other way. You're saved by Jesus alone. You've made that public profession. You've been baptized. You are invited to approach with confidence, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ's forgiveness and work. Those who are not invited, according to Scripture, are those who either do not believe those things. I don't need Jesus. I don't have enough sin in my life to, to, to warrant someone saving me. Or you, have, you are trying to do this thing where you have Christ and reject him too. There's a sin in your life that you prefer, and you refuse to repent of it. The Scriptures make it clear that you should not participate. And so we're going to do, just for a moment, let's pray quietly to ourselves. Let's analyze our hearts. And I will 
bring us back together with a prayer of blessing before we distribute the elements. So please just take a moment and pray. Father, Jesus, the Son, our brother, Holy Spirit, our guide, our comforter, we say this morning and we understand that your glory, your goodness, your grace, your wisdom, your justice, all these things, everything you are is greater than words can express. And yet, (laughs) it's a miracle You gave us words to express it. You gave us your word. You gave us prayer. You gave us the spirit to interpret what we say to you. So this morning, I pray that you would bless our hearts as we eat this bread and we drink this cup. Make it what it is meant to be, the spiritual presence of Christ here with us. Bless us with that. Remind us of that. Remind us of our desperate, desperate, desperate need for Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his advocacy, all of it. Our desperate need for the Spirit, which you give freely to those who are in Christ. Our desperate need to know you, Father, and to be in relationship with you. May the bread and the wine or the juice this morning be all of that to us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.